Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. All right, we're continuing uh, in Acts. We're sort of in a, I don't know, a little, little uh, sidebar, really. On the last days, what do those mean? And I really encourage you all to track with it. Probably one of the most challenging, if not confusing, teachings in the church. Remember, we live at the end of 2,000 years of church history. If we were just starting out in the first century, there would be false teachers around, but there wouldn't be that many. Um, We live at the end of 2,000 years of church history, of what you would call historical theology, of all kinds of ideas floating around. A lot of times ideas are vilified when really they were just attempts taking a first stab at trying to understand the Bible on a particular topic. And so people would say things loosely and later on they'd be condemned. And, you know, maybe they should, I wasn't there, so maybe they should have, maybe they shouldn't have. But as you read historical theology, sometimes you, you feel for this fellow named Nestorius. And Nestorius was condemned for Nestorianism but Nestorius was not a Nestorian. It's kind of a, an interesting thing. He got exiled. Being exiled meant you had to go for the next 200 miles. No one could feed you or, or, or shelter you, and that could easily be a death sentence. But Nestorius was, an Asto- was not a Nestorian. I always remember that. So, Church history, historical theology sometimes uh, is looking at things very black and white when things can be more gray. But here we are at the end of the 2,000 years of church history. We're at the end of probably 500 years of concerted efforts to understand how to interpret the Bible from beginning to end. We can focus on a doctrine like justification, and yeah, I mean, it's bite-sized. We can get it. We can see the passages. We can see the, you know, the the New Testament places where justification is argued for and presented and and set forth. And so we can say, yeah, justification by faith. We can talk about, uh, you know, I don't know, sanctification. Again, there are passages that apply to that. And uh, we can get a handle on it. Maybe there's a few passages that are like head scratchers. The biggest problem with sanctification, personal sanctification, is just the daily struggle. I said last week, putting to death sin, putting on righteousness, which is the core framework of it. Um, so the, the, the challenge of justification is not mixing it with sanctification. And the challenge with sanctification is doing it. <clears throat> and uh, the struggles of your ups and downs in your relationship with the Lord. The, pro- the problem with God taking you on mountaintops is sooner or later you go down into the valley. And you go, gosh, was that mountaintop real? You know. Up there, I was sure I was a Christian. Down here, I've I've got big questions. And so that's sanctification. It's a very subjective, personal thing. But these individual things you can look at. What is the church? Who is God? But in the church, there's been an attempt. There were early, what you might say, stabs. Uh, Irenaeus took a stab with recapitulation. The last Adam is just sort of doing over what the first Adam did and undoing over what the first Adam did. That was a, the first real attempt, I guess you would say. Wasn't much. It wasn't, 
you know, comprehensive at all, but it was a start. But really, in the 1500s, you had the Reformers, some of, some of the theologians of the Reformation, developed an attempt, and it's a good attempt, it's a good thing, to understand the Scriptures from end to end. And as first attempts will be, you get some things right, and, well, particularly when you're men of your times, in a church-state scenario, there might be some things that, that you don't get right. And that's what's an important thing to remember is that things like the Westminster Confession, things like the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, I, I love these documents. These documents are great, but they're human documents. And they were written by men of their times. And the times of those documents was a time of, at that point, 1,500 years of church history where church and state were joined together. There was no such thing as a separation of church and state. That was really an unheard of thing. And so as they interpret things, they just assume all this, you know, sort of background. And when they present their material some 500 years ago, 400 years ago, they, they bring to the party their assumptions. And some other folks came along a, I don't know, a couple hundred years later and started questioning those assumptions and came up with their own version called dispensationalism. And so you had two groups, <clears throat> two groups with their own positions on this matter. And if you were to look in America today and you could say, okay, what are, what are the various positions on how to interpret the Bible from end to end. Remember, dispensationalism, they talk about a rapture and things like that, which is another story, but dispensationalism is fundamentally an interpretation of the entire Bible. It's how to look at it from Genesis to Revelation. It's an end-to-end issue. And America is challenged. <clears throat> the churches are challenged because, you know, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but let's say basically half the church believes in the Westminster Confession, the covenant of grace, that kind of thing. And the other half of the church believes in dispensationalism. Again, I don't know what the numbers really are. And so half the church says, you're wrong. And the other half of the church says, no, you're wrong. Who are you supposed to believe? Do you have to just pick one or the other? And see, that's the challenge each one of us faces. We have to answer. We have to come and say, gosh, you know, these Westminster guys are pretty sharp. They got some great material here. We're uh, trying to, we're thinking about a catechism for middle schoolers. <clears throat> and the Westminster Confession has a great catechism. And what's really strange, because we're Baptists, and, and uh, you know, we're not going <clears> to, <throat> we're not going to go for paedo-baptism, but if you go to the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechism, they have the best statement of the nature of baptism you will ever read. It's amazing. And then the next statement says, yeah, and you do this for babies. And you're like, what, what? You just had this like, greatest statement ever on what baptism is, and now you're applying it to someone who can't believe, can't possibly believe. So there's a lot of cross-current, a lot of concern 
We'd like to, <coughs> we're trying to get an amalgam of confessions. Westminster's a little bit long. <coughs> um, there's Keech's, there's Keech's catechism. And so we're trying to sort of pull some things together, take the best, at least the best that we think of things, and put them together. But we're all faced with this, every one of us. When it comes to the second coming itself, there's been, if you understand the history of the church, and you really have to understand it to appreciate why we are where we are at, if that's even a good sentence. In the late 1800s, middle, late 1800s, all of the mainline conservative seminaries, whether they were Presbyterian, whether they were Baptist, whether they were Methodist, they were conservative. And within 40 years, they got taken over by liberals. And so think about that. By about the year 1900, if you were a conservative in what is historically a conservative church, you woke up one day and found out that the preachers they were sending you were liberals, telling you the Bible really wasn't the word of God or wasn't infallible and all these things. And a huge, massive spiritual war ensued. Remember, America was mostly rural. People were mostly farmers. And when they start hearing at church that, well, the Bible's not really the word of God and you know, Jesus really wasn't born of a Virgin Mary, and, you know, there's not really a second coming. Guess what all those conservative Christians said? No, we're not going there. And when they went to try to fix it and say, hey, you seminaries, give us conservative preachers, the seminary said, no, we're not doing that. Because those preachers are teaching what we believe. And then when they went to the boardrooms of, you know, the denominational headquarters and said, hey, you need to fix your seminaries, they said, we're not fixing our seminaries. We think they're great. And all of a sudden, American Christians who were conservative found themselves being really basically thrown out of the institutions that they had loved, that they had served in, that conservatives had built from scratch in this country. It was huge. And so you had the modernist conservative wars of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And the conservators are like, what do we do? And hence, they said, well, <laughs> we don't fit there, and they're already basically throwing us out and telling us the, churches, the church buildings that you use, the infrastructure, belongs to the liberals, the modernists. And so we got to go strike out on our own. So if you ever wonder where Bob Jones came from, that's where it came from. They got thrown out, someone might say, of their denominational structures, and they had to come up with their own. Tennessee Temple, there was the, the rise of the Bible school movement. And that's where all these sort of independent Bible schools came around. And there was a fellow named C.I. Schofield who at that time wrote a Bible with notes. And he adopted dispensationalism and rapture and all those things into his notes. So if you were somebody out in the country, you'd work your tractor, come in at night, or get up early in the morning, 
Schofield's Bible was what everybody started reading. And they go, hey, this guy tells me that Jesus was born of a virgin. This guy tells me that Jesus is coming back literally. You know, I may not understand everything that Mr. Schofield's presenting here, but I know those things are true, and that's what I'm going to believe. And so the entirety of evangelicalism, what became evangelicalism, was born in this Bible school movement that was founded on C.I. Schofield and dispensationalism. And so you have to understand that. And so what we're talking about in Acts is we're trying to correct that historical problem. They were known as fundamentalists and they tended to jettison the history of the church because, well, as far as they could tell, all these highfalutin historians had robbed them of the true gospel. They weren't reacting to nothing, but they reacted. Dallas Theological Seminary was born, all these places. And dispensationalism was at the heart of everything. It was the heartbeat. It's the framework of the entire Bible. That's what it deals with. So what we're addressing in Acts, please don't think it's some attempt just to say, well, this is what I believe. It is absolutely strategic that you understand these things. Because if dispensationalism is true, then it's the key to the scriptures. But if it's not, it is a huge aberration. It is an aberration at the most fundamental levels. And so what I'm trying to do here in Acts, because it's a grand opportunity to do so, is to try to get us to see that the Bible is actually really simple on the structure of the history of redemption. You don't have to puzzle over what all these people say. It's really simple. And the reason it got all mucked up is because people had some preconceived ideas from the Old Testament. Daniel, the 70 weeks, you know, you gotta split the 70th week off, all this stuff. In order to make that fit into the New Testament, they had to start interpreting the New Testament in ways that are just not natural to the language and the presentation. And that's why I'm doing this. Not trying to be mean, not trying to be, you know, conflicting with people, don't wanna get in debates over these things. You know, try to have discussions, lively ones. But I've tried to deal with this issue with people for 45 years. And they most always go in circles. Because people just don't want to relinquish what they grew up with. And I keep saying, gosh, this stuff is really simple. And they look at me with, no, I've got this chart. You look at the chart and you're like, magnifying glass to really get in on the and these people are sincere when they're presenting this I mean they wholeheartedly believe this and they're wholeheartedly trying to find out what the scriptures say but they make it so complicated most people throw up their hands and say oh well who can figure this out they must be right and I'm trying to come to you and say no you don't have to do that all you got to do is read Peter Peter's statement of Joel 
and it clears everything up. It just really does. In what? Two verses. Maybe four. But two basic sentences, two basic statements. And so what we're dealing with this morning is strategic. Strategic for you to see that these matters are actually easily understood, easily grasped. Now, there was a Sunday school, and some folks asked me to teach on the second coming, so I did. I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but anyway, I did. And when I started the Sunday school, I took two pieces of thread, one in each hand, and I brought them together, and I tied them together in a little knot, and I said, okay, I just did this in about 10 seconds. How many of you can think you can do this in 10 seconds? And everybody raises their hand. Okay. I'm going to give you two pieces of thread, and I'm going to bet you that you can't do it in 10 seconds. And they're all like, oh, come on, Steve. So they all said, yeah, we got to the moment. We're all going to try it. We're all going to time it. And I reached into my bag, and I pulled out balls of thread that you couldn't possibly even find the, where the threads began and end. I said, there, go for it. And, of course, they failed, right? You see, these matters would be easy if you just had two simple threads, You could tie them together easily. But that's not what we have today. We're at the end of 2,000 years of church history where everybody has balled things up. And the hardest part for most of you is not tying the threads together. It's figuring out where the threads are. And that's my challenge. And see, people will react sometimes to these things because... That's not their way of thinking. Well, they say, man, Steve, so many people believe it this way. I'm like, yeah, half the church believes they're wrong, and the other half of the church believes they're wrong. I, I believe them both. I'm with the whole church. I believe both of these positions are wrong. I'm actually in good company. And I'm just trying to say they're wrong because they get too complex. They try to build systems of theology instead of just read the Bible. Now there's a brother here, those of you here this morning, <clears throat> who had gotten frustrated about the second coming. And we were going to do it, we did it actually a few months ago, we did the thing on the second coming, some others from outside the church had asked me to do it, a couple people in the church had. Said, okay, we'll do it. <clears throat> and it was kind of like on the eve of, we were talking and he said, look, I'm so frustrated I'm not even going to try. You can't even figure this out. So he still came, and at the end of the class, he saw how simple the second coming was. You can talk to him. Ask each person if you're him. That cuts it in half. <clears throat> it was a him. And he was so happy just to see that the second coming is just a simple thing. It really is. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make this word of God simple for you. that you don't have to throw your hands up and say, oh, that's just so complicated, who can deal with it? So we're dealing with discipleship, the beginnings in the church. Discipleship, again, fundamentally, is personally following Jesus. That's what a disciple is. If you make a disciple, you simply make someone to personally follow Jesus. 
Everything is at stake, so it really is important that we understand it. We're looking at context, hence we're sort of on a a little detour for a second. We were in Acts chapter 2. We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit visibly on people. And everybody in the crowd is amazed and they're saying, hey, what is this about? There's this event of the Holy Spirit coming. And in Joel chapter, or rather, in uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter starts with Joel. One of the things he says is this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel and we focused a bit on this is that and we have to understand that the New Testament this is the Old Testament that, that this is how you interpret the Bible. It's called hermeneutics. And in this whole discussion on how you interpret the entire Bible, everybody recognizes that your hermeneutics will determine your conclusion. Everybody acknowledges that. So hermeneutics is really important. Are we going to take up Peter's this is that, or are we going to adopt another set of hermeneutics? becomes a question, because the one you adopt is the one that will bring your conclusion. This Holy Spirit is the prophet Joel, the fulfillment of it. So the direction of interpretation is New Testament fulfillment and reality interprets Old Testament prophecy, type, and shadow. That's my hermeneutic. We have to understand that the Bible comes to us with this idea of eras. There is distinct periods of redemptive history that have particular features and characteristics. In the Old Testament, its features are promise, prophecy type, shadow. You can throw in symbol and imagery in terms of of how you're dealing with a lot of the prophets. The New Testament, we see there's this sense that the promises and prophecies were accomplished, they were fulfilled. Type and shadow is now reality and substance. And Jesus coming in human history, his manifestation in human history is a fulfillment, not only of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, but of God's eternal purpose. Just read Titus chapter one, the first few verses, and Timothy, first Timothy, read down a few verses and you'll see that that is what is presented. And there's gonna be a final era of human history, one that we should all look forward to the one in which all the eras that have gone before will end up being, what was I thinking? What was I thinking being all worried about what I was going to eat or drink? What was I thinking being all worried about this or that? I'm in a new heavens and a new earth with a glorified body. And I'm with God and Christ in the ages to come. Peter starts out in his quoting of Joel. He quotes Joel, several verses. In the last days it shall be, God declares. Now, a lot of times we think of last days because of all the end times focus. I remember I was going through an airport. I mean, I told this story before. When you get older, you can't remember where, who, where, what you told the story. But I was going through an airport because at that time for about 20 years, I flew four times a week. Um, And uh, so I was always in airports. And some of the the books about, uh, oh, what was the name of it now, the series, Left Behind, okay, was being published. And I'm like, uh, Left Behind, okay. And someone sitting next to me starts saying, yeah, I read this book, Left Behind. And I got saved. And it's like the Lord reminded me, hey, just because you don't agree with the framework of Left Behind doesn't mean I can't use it to save people. And he did. 
But everybody's all excited about the end times in the last days. If you win a crowd, advertise you're going to talk about the end times. I may do that one day. Uh, I don't know. The crowd might come the first night. Not sure how many will show up the second. But. And they equate last days with end times because that, that, that terminology just makes sense. And it's viewing, quote, what we call eschatology, the, the study of last things. It's viewing them from our standpoint in 2023 in our personal life history. Well, the end times sound like they should be down the road, right? Those must be the last days. But that's not the terminology of scriptures we've seen. Joel is using terminology not from our historical reference point, but from his own. Joel is looking forward. It's, you know, Joel probably written during or after the exile. I used to think not. It took a long time for someone to convince me otherwise. And, uh, but I got to admit, and I, I grudgingly have to admit, Joel was probably written after the exile. The proof is, once you get into the technicalities, like, yeah, that's hard to say no to. But Joel in his day, 800 or 500 B.C., whichever you pick, certainly long before the coming of Christ, and he said the last days are future to Joel, to me, and that's how we have to view the last days. In these last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So this coming of the Holy Spirit marks the initiation, the beginning of the last days. So we know when it begins. There's no question when the last days begin. Joel says it, it's plain and clear, and Pentecost nails it. 30 AD, thereabout, is the beginning of the last days. Human history, this is a real thing in history, remember. God's in charge of history. God's not some abstraction. Theology is not some abstraction. The truths of the scripture are real things. Paul said we don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. There are unseen things that are things, and they're real, and they are our hope, and they make up the sum and substance of our faith and our life. So the coming of the Holy Spirit inaugurates or initiates the last days. They begin. We know when they begin. But the question is, is when do they end? So we started last week a little bit on how do they end? We sort of read the, the passage. That's about as far as we got. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Picture of a battlefield almost. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. See, there are wonders in heavens above, and there are signs on the earth below. The earth below signs are blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the heaven above signs are sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible, or the great and magnificent day. There have been many instances in, in history where God has brought his day of the Lord, his judgment on nations, on Israel, but this is the great one. This is the final one. This is the big one. This is the one that counts. This is the one you want to not be on the wrong side of. So I thought this morning we'd look at Joel. And I read a little commentary on Joel. It was good. I started another commentary. It was pretty good too. Didn't get that far, but I liked it because it's only three chapters. I mean, okay. 
skinny little commentaries. I can read those. But as I was thinking about how many times this terminology occurs in the prophet Joel, there's actually five times we have this, what we might call sort of apocalyptic language. And certainly we have this reference to the day of the Lord. And as you go through them, you watch them build and intensify. And they give you more and more detail as you go through. So that's what I felt like, okay, that's what helped me, and hopefully this will help you. Joel 1.15, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isn't a cheery message, right? But as Christians, we're not here to be optimists. We're not here to be pessimists. We're here to be realists. And the realism is that there's a day of the Lord. The realism is that there's a human race. The realism is that there's human sin. The realism is that there's a righteous God. The realism is that God uh, just, he reacts against sin. He hates all sin. He takes all sin personally, and he doesn't take it lying down. This is God's universe. This is God's world, and God has said, okay, you human race, you want to engage in sin, that I'm going to have to address it because this is my universe, and your sin has sent negative ripples throughout the universe. And I am the righteous judge, and I am the almighty king, and this is my universe. And I will maintain my honor, my dignity, my righteousness, and my truth in my universe. That is paramount. God cannot get off his throne on account of sin. Can't do it. Won't do it. And so alas for the day, there's this day. It's not a day God glories in, but it's a day in which God will be vindicated. The whole entire human race will recognize that all their, their dreamings, all of their manipulations to suppress the truth of God, to deny God, especially in our day when people are looking at God's creation in such a way that we've never seen it so glorious and majestic before, and they're using the truth that this is God's universe, they're using it against him. But alas, for them, the day. The day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. It's a day when God will render judgment. The judgment will come in the form of destruction. It's rendered by God personally. And it will come as destruction from whom? The Almighty. No one will be able to resist or escape this judgment. He's Almighty. The day of the Lord. The day of reckoning. This is where Joel introduces this topic, and it's God speaking. Now, this idea of the day of the Lord is throughout the Old Testament. You can see it in all these passages. Someone once says, I could send them to you. You can look in a concordance. It's, it's out there. The day of the Lord is a big deal, it's a big deal to God should be a big deal to us. And it should be a big deal in our proclamation of the gospel. 
See, our problem, you know, when we hear things and, and you know, there's the, the, the one at least for our generation, my generation, we heard, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, they're talking about Jesus, and I bet a lot of people got saved through that message. But it's pretty inaccurate in terms of its statement. In the book of Acts, as we've probably mentioned before, some of you, it, it, go look up how many times love occurs in the book of Acts. It occurs zero times. In the book of Acts is the picture of the presentation of the gospel to unbelievers. And we're not saying that God doesn't love people. What we're saying is that the message of the gospel is that you're a sinner and you need salvation. And God in love has presented a remedy. And you're not to believe that Jesus died for your sin. You're to believe on Jesus who died for sinners. You believe in a person, not a doctrine of the atonement. Now, you can embrace that doctrine of the atonement, and then, you're, <laughs> and then you find out, oh, which one? General, definite? But Jesus died for sinners. Jesus loved sinners. He came into the world to save sinners, that's for sure. But the real message of the gospel is the bigger picture. My friend, you are in the image of God. This is God's world. God designed everything. You don't get to change the design of God. You don't get to tell God that you don't have to live according to his word and truth and, and righteousness. You don't get to do that. And there's a day in which God is going to judge the human race. There's a wrath to come. And God has said if you'll come to his son in Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and confess your sin, be honest with God about your sin. To confess is a simple word. It's homo legeo. Legeo means to say, to speak, and homo means the same. When you confess your sin, you're supposed to say the same thing. That's confession. You're supposed to say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. That you did it. That it's on you. It wasn't because, you know, you're getting a raw deal in life. It wasn't because the devil made me do it. Sure, he may have been there pushing you and pressuring you and making you feel like he was making you do it, but he didn't. Your sin is your sin. Confession says, I'm going to confess my sin. He that covers his sin will not prosper, says in Proverbs. But he who confesses his and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. And that's the message of 1 John, chapter 1. And John goes on to say, as a matter of fact, if you deny your sin, if you say you don't have sin or you haven't sinned or there's no such thing as sin, that would be Far Eastern religions and Gnosticism and things like that. If you start distorting the reality that you are personally a sinner and you are accountable to God for sin, if you start explaining that away, you're in big trouble. You're lying and you're calling God a liar. You're not saying the same thing as God about your sin that he says about your sin. But if you confess your sin, you come to God and say, yeah, I'm a dirtball sinner. This is wrong. This is wretched. This is, this is horribly evil. And Lord, I'm accountable to you, and I ask you to forgive my sin. And, but God, you're holy and you're righteous. How can you forgive my sin? Are you just going to sweep it under the carpet? God says, no. I have someone who paid for your sin. My son. And if you come to him, 
then you can have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. And he will take up your case. So there's a day of the Lord. It's all over the Old Testament. It's a day of the Lord because there's human sin and this is God's world and that's our message, folks. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is also talked about. And so Joel talks about this, oops, this day of the Lord, judgment from the Almighty. Joel chapter 2, 2 through 3. The intensity of the description grows. The, the feature of darkness is emphasized. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Zion, that's parallelism. Zion is God's holy mountain. Let all the, habit, the inhabitants of the land tremble. See, when we present a gospel to people, we need to be sober. We need to start bringing them into the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the chief part, the foundation of, or the beginning, if you will, of all knowledge, all true knowledge of who you are in this world. Now, it's not the knowledge of physics. It's not the knowledge of math. It's not the knowledge of English. It's the knowledge of God, which is central and essential to who every human being is. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Get serious with God. Get serious with your sin. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And it's not a day of well, God loves me, and you know, hey, you know, God understands my sin. It's not a day where God is love and two homosexuals love each other, therefore that justifies their relationship. No. It's a day in which God's standards and God's design for humanity and for sexuality will be enforced to the letter. A psychologized Western world that thinks that reality is in the head instead of in what you do and who you are. That says, I can engage in fantasies about my sexuality. No. God has given a design for our humanity and he's stamped it into our very physical bodies. And God expects us to align ourselves with that and not change it or adjust it on a whim. For the day of the Lord is coming, and surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You know, sometimes God will bring us into this, where we just start getting into a cloud of thick darkness to remind us that we're sinners, and that Jesus saved us from our sin, real sin, that brought real death on a cross 2,000 years ago. That my sin is forgiven on a just basis. That my sin is forgiven because blood covers it. Not just anyone's blood, the blood of the Son of God, the righteous one. We see Joel, God speaking through Joel, and there's this mounting set of metaphors. And in this particular passage, God is reminding us that it's going to be a very sobering day for everybody. Joel 
Joel 2.11, the third instance where this day of the Lord is presented to us. The Lord utters his voice before his army, and this army is, well, because Joel has got a lot of metaphors and you can't really necessarily track them all 100%, but the, the weight of the language, basically, his army is the locusts that he introduces in chapter 1. It's kind of interesting because it goes along with God's the one bringing this judgment. So back in that, those days, as it is in ours, when the locusts would spring up out of nowhere and come in swarms so big they can't even be numbered, they would just eat everything in the fields, all the plants. Well, if you're a farmer, that's probably not a good outcome. And if your whole entire economy is based on farming, it's a really bad outcome for everybody. And in a world that you know, doesn't have food stores like America, people start starving. It's a real problem. But the locust horde of chapter 1 in Joel is... Well, there was a first wave that ate almost everything, and then, oh, well, then there was a second wave that, at, that ate what the first wave missed. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's a third wave that at, ate what the second wave missed, and there's a fourth wave that ate what the third wave missed. And everybody was powerless in this, by the way. This is God from heaven bringing judgment. And so if someone says, I can defy the judgment of God, you should probably go and talk to those folks back in Joel. God has easily, can bring his whole natural order, his whole created order against somebody. Didn't he not do that in the flood? Everybody thought they were going to make it? Yeah, it's just, you know, party time, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Until the Day came and the flood came and took them all away. A world of humanity thinking we're, we're making it happen. We're at the top of the food chain. We have technology, and they probably thought they had great technology then. And we're conquering nature, doing our thing, and who cares about God? By the way, let's build a tower to heaven, you know. And that was after the first flood. Judgment doesn't save people. Grace does. His army. Surely this army, this camp is very great. You're not going to be able to stand against it. And then there's descriptions in Joel about this army. They'll come in at the doors, they'll come in in the windows, and you start going, yep, that's locusts. That's not, you know, who are some of those ninja guys that seem to bounce everywhere? He wasn't talking about ninjas. He was talking about locusts. For strong is he who carries out his word. God is going to make this happen. This judgment is going to happen. Do not think you can evade it. Do not think you can work around it. Do not think you can talk God out of it. There's only one thing that you can do that will get you out of this judgment, and that is to get a lawyer, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and have him plead your case. And in the end, he just shows his own blood. And you are justified. Nothing else will happen. Nothing else will do it. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? 
Now the world mocks fire and brimstone preachers and they give a picture of a fire and brimstone and the picture they give is kind of, eh, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'm hearing the message. I'm just seeing the, you know, someone who they portray as crazy. And I'm sure there's people who fit that description in the past. But fire and brimstone is real. The day of the Lord is indeed great and awesome and who is going to be able to endure it? Who can stand when God brings his judgment? This is not a positive picture. This is one that should bring fear to every human heart that we will all one day be manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to happen. He's strong, who can endure. No manipulation, no contrivance will succeed. Now, Joel is kind of vague on purpose about what his army is because he's kind of vague in general in his prophecy. And there's some reasons for it where we're going to see. But up to this point in Joel, you feel like that this is a local day of the Lord, a day of the Lord on this generation of Israelites or on this nation here. But as we're going to see, as the prophecy progresses, the scope is going to expand to all nations. And the chronology will point not to some time in history, but to a final and permanent outcome. And that's where we get to our passage that Peter is quoting. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This description, as you you can even notice, that the words on the page start to get bigger. And the words definitely get more intense as you progress through Joel. The apocalyptic features are now being multiplied and they're all being brought together. There's blood, there's fire, there's sun, there's moon. There's this deep sense of God having the final ultimate word. It's the great and awesome day of the Lord. God himself will be exalted. God will be the one in charge. Everyone will be silent before him as God now having endured, as Peter says, you know, all the hard things spoken against him. Those mouths will now be shut and God's going to have his say. There's a sense of divine majesty, of permanent victory and ultimate vindication. God is bringing the whole of human history to a final outcome. And then the final passage in Joel 3, 13 through 16, let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and so on. This is Joel's last and fullest expression of the day of the Lord in the associated imagery. The context brings in all of the surrounding enemies of God and the people of God. Every now and then in Joel, he says, you all need to pray, you all need to fast, you all need to humble yourself before the Lord and see if he won't give you a blessing. In the midst of all this judgment, see if God might suspend it on your behalf because you are repenting and seeking the Lord. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, some folks try to locate this valley on a map today, and it's pretty hard to pinpoint because we don't really know where this valley is. People suggest it's here and there, and they might have some, I don't know, some uh, 
old maps or something, but they're old maps that don't go back, back very far. Jehoshaphat, it's used in Joel 3, 2, and here in verse 12, means Yahweh judges, or Yahweh has judged. And in the sort of ambiguous metaphorical nature of Joel, sort of the apocalyptic nature of Joel, you're never really sure what's to be taken literally and what is to be taken as pointing to something bigger. But God says, let the nations stand up, get up, and come into this valley of the Lord judges. And there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. This is clearly a judicial process in which God is going to sit as the righteous judge and he is going to bring the correct, proper punishment to those who have rebelled against him and to those who have destroyed his people. There's a brother in Florida, he remembered very clearly, he was in the army and he was out on his post one night and a sergeant came up and found him asleep. And he thought, man, this Sarge is mean. You know, I'm going to get in big trouble. And so he's talking with the Sarge, trying to think he's going to have to get himself in trouble. And the sergeant said this. He said, don't worry about it. You're a Christian. You just stay awake. Don't do this again. And he said, well, what do you mean? And this, this was one hardened sergeant. He's not a Christian, not anything. And he said, I had a fellow sergeant one time who picked on a Christian and he died. God struck him and killed him in the most miserable way. He said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. He had the fear of God even though he didn't believe in Jesus. You don't touch God's people. And most people don't have that perspective. They think, yeah, let's get rid of God's people because they're just in the way of our sinful world. Just an annoyance to us. They're just terrorists. Let's get rid of them. But God is going to come one day and judge for all of that. Judge the nations. Again, some want to, want to locate this valley in a specific geographical place. Some say it's in a desert near Tekoa and others in the upper Kidron Valley between the temple and the Mount of Olives. Those are, you know, attempts, fine. But Joel is a symbolic book, and as we get to the end, and everybody recognizes, by the way, this is talking about the second coming, or the day of judgment, whatever you want to say. Everybody knows that when you get to Joel 3, 2 and 3, you're, you're in a bigger picture than some local judgment. But so I'm going to take it literally and say, well, there's some actual physical, geographical places where this is going to occur, and others, they look at the symbolism of the book, the nature of the book, and they say, nah, this is probably an indeterminate place representing the final day of judgment. Get, get the big picture here. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, and their wickedness is great. Some of you may recognize this terminology found all over in Revelation chapter 14, the sickle, the harvest, the wine press, the wine press of the wrath of God. It's all over in Revelation 14, 16, 18, 19, those chapters. For a little prophecy, Joel had a huge impact on the New Testament. 
Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is that same valley of Jehoshaphat. Now it's seen to be a valley of decision. First of all, there's multitudes, multitudes. It's a crowd. The picture is a crowd that's in panic. This word decision actually comes from a word that means to thresh or to be a threshing board. It's a process where the grain was threshed and they take it through this pretty tough process where the grains are separated from the stalks. It's a, it's a very robust process. And then after that, the, the grain is winnowed, it's beaten, and then it's winnowed, and the wheat is separated from the chaff. That's the picture here. And everybody there knew it. They lived with this. I'm a city kid. I, I had to look all this stuff up. But there's this reinforced judicial sense of things, this valley, or this, this day of the Lord... This valley of decision is a day of justice and judgment. And then we get, of course, the the apocalyptic language. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And what's really interesting here is we don't have anything happening on earth anymore, do we? We have these things. They are decidedly a God-centered viewpoint. It is coming from heaven. It is cosmic in its proportions, cosmic in its breadth. The sense that God is being exalted, humanity is being humbled to its proper place before him. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Now, if all we had was the Old Testament, we would certainly be justified in applying all this to an earthly location of Jerusalem. That would be a fair interpretation. But we have a New Testament, and a New Testament presents a heavenly Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 12. And a matter of fact, when it presents this heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about God shaking the heavens and the earth one last time. Revelation 21 and 22, a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. I mean, to say that this is a literal geographical place on earth perhaps has some merit until you start putting it in the bigger context of New Testament interpretation. Hence, we consider the principle of this is that the New Testament fulfills and therefore interprets the Old Testament, and that's how we must look at this. We can't just push the New Testament aside. The imagery designates and presents that the final day of the Lord is a day of cosmic justice and cosmic judgment, and the very earth itself will be trembling. But here's the blessing, here's the bright spot in the midst. There's the silver lining in this cloud of doom. The Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. The same day that brings destruction to the wicked of which we once were. Sometimes it's really hard for me just personally to read destruction to the wicked. I should glory in that. Like, no, I don't. I was one of them. And should, you know, if everybody knew what was in my heart, they would go and burn me at the stake right now. Let's, let's get this guy out of here. He's really a bad person. When I think of this terminology of the wicked, the only reason I'm not there and the only reason you're not there is the eternal love of God, the electing love of God, the sovereign love of God. And he didn't pick you because he thought you were going to be good. He picked you because he knew you were going to be the least and he was going to show his glory in your life. That's why he picked you. He didn't pick you for anything that you should be, be saying, yeah, I was, you know, 
this and that. Man, that's why God picked me. I look, I look around at a lot of unbelievers I know. Again, I think of Jordan Peterson. Like, I'd pick Jordan Peterson miles before I'd pick Steve Cowden any day of the week, but he hasn't. Some people also, I think, scratch their heads. Why did God pick Steve Cowden? Like, I don't know. I can't tell you. So here's brief little Joel providing all of this imagery. And so we have to see Joel as he's at first talking about temporal and local judgment, the day of the Lord, but soon you start to realize that, no, he's talking about a day of cosmic and final judgment. Now we're out of time. Next week we'll go into Matthew. I haven't encouraged you to read this week, truly, Matthew 24 and 25. Actually, you've got to start at the end of Matthew 23 and read through Matthew 25. And as you're reading this, remember that there are three questions that were asked. And Jesus answers those three questions. He's there in the temple and all the, all the rural folk, not the city folk, but the rural folk are looking at the temple going, man, they're just amazed. I remember when I first went to Chicago, big city. I was watching, walking around going, gosh, how do they even do this? It was amazing to me. Not amazing now, but it was then. Maybe I should be amazed. Maybe there's an architect or two around here that might tell me how amazed I should be, which I'm glad to always be amazed. But they're in the temple, and Jesus said not one stone's going to be left upon another, and they're like, What? This is God's city. You know, you do away with Jerusalem and then you do away with everything. That was their perspective. But they knew Jesus had told them many what they considered perhaps tough things to digest. And so after he said that, they came to him in private. And this is what you do if you got some questions about things. You come to Jesus in private and say, Lord, what, what does this passage mean? How am I supposed to think of this? And they said several things. They said, Lord... When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the consummation of the age or the end of the world, as many translations have it? Those are really three questions. And Jesus answered them, all three, and he actually added a little bonus in. And the rest of Matthew 24 is separate answers to those questions. Jesus tells them when these things shall be, sort of the end of Matthew 24. Jesus says, what shall be the, they ask him, what's the sign of your coming? He tells them at the beginning. They're asking about, what about, you know, the temple falling apart? Well, he tells them kind of in the middle. And then he tells them about the coming itself. So there's the sign, the, the, basically the win and the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem that he had just spoken of and of the end of the age. So as you read Matthew 24, start thinking, oh, if Jesus was answering this question here and then this question there, maybe I should not read it as a continuous narrative. Maybe I should go, okay, this is the answer to question, this one, this is the answer to that question. And they pretty much fit, except you'll scratch your head on a couple, which is fine. But we're going to see that in the final answer, the, the big picture about his coming, he's going to take up the language of Joel.
to describe his second coming. So why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we have looked at this prophecy of Joel. You spoke it. You spoke it at least 2,500 years ago, if not more. These are real words. They're not words of uh, joy. They're words of, of soberness. We pray, Lord, that everyone here will recognize that we are going to stand before you one day and give an account for every idle word. That's what you said. Lord Jesus, you stood and you said that that's what we're going to have to do. Every idle word. Our idle words will betray us. Our idle words will reinforce who we are or betray who we are. And Lord, let us that sober our lives up that whatever we think, say, and do, that it will be done with an ultimate reference to there's a day of accountability and that what we've done in secret will be shouted on the housetops. Lord, nothing will be hidden from you in that day. You have to sift everything down to the bone, everything down to the final measure of things because you are the righteous one. Our sin is real. Our sin caused you a huge problem. How can you save us without judging us in eternity? And Lord, just that we would always give thanks to you that you have brought in a way to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Lord, Joel has proclaimed an awful day, an awesome day, a terrible day, but it's a day in which you will be exonerated before the nations. You will be justified. Everyone in that day will know who you are that you created all things. No more questions about the origin of the universe. You will be seen as the great creator. There will be no questions about who we are, that we're made in your image, and that we have obligations to you. There will be no question about that. There will be no question every one of us owes our allegiance to you. From our very conception, we have owed our allegiance to you, that you give us life and breath and all things. And that means we have responsibility, we have privilege. More than that day, everybody's going to know that. Everybody's going to know what sin is and how awful it is. And everyone, even those who are judged, even those who go into an eternal lake of fire, your description. Lord, even those who go there will acknowledge that true and righteous are your judgments, O oh Lord. You will be vindicated. You will be honored. Your majesty will be before all. And everyone will be wishing that when they heard that gospel, even if it was, was Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, even if that was the gospel that they have when they heard that gospel that they didn't run to you, that they didn't embrace you. Lord, thank you that there are people that do. Here we are. We did. We have our ups and downs, but we did, and you have preserved us. And Lord, when some go house to house, when we talk to people individually, when perhaps we have some other project where we go downtown or other things, the Lord, your gospel will go forth in power just from our simple witness. Pray you'd bless all the saints all over the world who are bearing witness in places we can never go, never even think of, don't even know exist, to people we, we will never meet until the day of judgment. 
Lord, you will bless the testimony of everyone. All those who proclaim your gospel will be bold, will be confident, and yet will be humble, and yet be joyful that they have the words of life and they can give them to other people. And they are words of life. Lord, thank you that grace glories against judgment in so many lives, but nevertheless, in the end, you are the righteous and the holy God. And let that day of the Lord always be in our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.